first scripture of the day comes in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Well, I want to thank so many of you who uh, gave me birthday cards this last week. Uh, I appreciate them. Um, it was uh, fun to see. Uh, but I have to share one with you. This is from my family to me, okay? It's a picture of a lady in the 1800s. I think she's a lady, even though it looks like she has a mustache. I'm just not sure. Full close up to her neck and her sleeves down and all in black and some kind of a, yeah, flowery headpiece that's all black. And on the front it says, remember me? And then you open it up and it says, you were a year ahead of me in high school. This is my family. This is how they, uh, they treat me, yeah. Yeah. And I think I remember her in high school. I don't know. I... Well, I, I want to share an old joke, but it asks the question, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? And, and first it says Pentecostal. It says it takes 10 one to change the bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians, it says none. The light will go on and off at predetermined times or predestined times. Roman Catholics, none. Candles only. Baptists, at least 15. One to change the bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad and the fried chicken. Episcopalians, it only takes three. One to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old one was. <laughs> Methodists, it's undetermined how many it would take. Whether your light is bright or dull or completely out, you're loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a tulip bulb. Church-wide lighting services planned for Sunday. Bring a bulb of your choice and a covered dish. Lutherans, none, because Lutherans don't believe in change. I know this for a fact, I was married to a Lutheran. And then the last one is Amish, what's a light bulb? One more. How many church members does it take to change a bulb? Change? Who said anything about change? I don't think uh, I can count the number of times I've heard people say to me, well, that's just me. You'll have to take me like I am. Or what you see is what you get. Usually this attitude refers to some personal quirk that they've decided not to deal with. As threatening as change may be, consider where we would be if we'd refuse to learn to walk or to talk or to train for a job. But there is, at some point in our life, all of us, when we say, that's it, I'm staying right here, and we calcify on the very spot. This attitude denies the core of the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You see, he saved us to transform us into his likeness. Let me tell you that becoming like him would be a vast improvement for all of us in this room. Problem is, we believe that what we have become accustomed to 
is best for us. Change threatens us. If what I have been preaching these last few months is true, and I believe it is, Jesus Christ died and rose again so that each of us would be transformed into his likeness. Jesus Christ, as our leader, will assault our assumptions about money and friends and enemies and career and marriage and parenting and attitudes and, well, the world in general. Paul uh, Hebert uh, sees Christianity as a unique experience where followers are moving towards Christ who is the attracting center of the entirety of life. The convicting uh, thing is that he says that some of us in smug satisfaction, happy with our spiritual status quo, have come to a particular place in our Christian walk and have said, in essence, this is good enough. I think I'll stay here. Going into orbit around Jesus means stifling any further impulse of movement towards him. Are you getting this? Orbital Christians contradict the very essence of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Fully devoted followers are involved in a passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ and are never satisfied with the stagnancy of a comfortable orbit. I wrestled with this this week. Am I in a comfortable orbit with my relationship with Jesus? You know, this last week I turned 69. And I'm going, yeah, hard to believe, huh? Yeah, hard to believe for me. I know I'm only 52. But that's where I'm at. And I wrestled with the whole idea of myself saying, Randy, are you in a comfortable orbit around Jesus where you're just circling around him and you're not drawing closer to him? And I said, wow, I need to start to draw closer to Jesus. I'm too comfortable in where I am right now. I've got to start making steps closer to Jesus, which means I'm going to let him transform my life. You know, I've been a pastor for 40 years You'd think I'd let him transform my life enough, but I haven't. There's still things in my life that I don't let him have control of, and I need to do that. Orbital Christian brings honor to nobody, not to Jesus Christ, not to God, and certainly not to you. Sure, orbital Christianity is attractive because, well, let's be real, it's comfortable, less challenging. And besides, we uh, can always take satisfaction in the fact that others whose orbits are farther out than ours, but that's not God's will for our life. Getting out of orbit and moving again towards Jesus Christ is a followership decision. We just make that decision for none of us here are in the place that Jesus wants us to be. I've watched over the last few years as I've been in this church. I've been here almost two and a half years now, sitting against that pillar for two of them. Uh, but I've watched you. And what I've seen 
is that some of you have come to a dead stop in your followership of Jesus Christ. And today is a call to all of us to resume our adventure with Christ, drawing closer to him, not just having head knowledge about Jesus, but real life experience with him in ministry. I was struck this week by another thought. How vast the ocean of love that God has for us. We think that, you know, uh, my family went on vacation a little over a week ago and we went to Lake Tahoe. Let me tell you, Lake Tahoe was absolutely full and colder than cold. In fact, I put my toes in and that was as far as I got in the water. And for some of us, that's the way it is. There's an ocean of God's love and we're, well, maybe we're standing ankle deep in it. And he calls us to come on in to experience more of his love for us. You're loved by God. Let, let me just say this to you. This is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling to me. Um, I, I'm surprised that God loves me. I know all of the junk that I've done for 69 years. And let me tell you, it was really not very good. Just ask my sister. No, don't ask my sister. In fact, she still can't believe I'm a minister. After 40 years, she goes, are you really a minister? I go, yeah. Just tells you how much God loves us. He loves you. And he has an ocean of love that he wants to call you into. An experience. But you've got to stop being an orbital Christian. You've got to start drawing closer to Jesus. And it's really simple. Just say, Jesus, help me get closer to you. You know what? He jumps right at that every time. That's a prayer that he will answer yes to every time. Jesus, help me to get closer to you. And he'll help you do that. Getting out of orbit and moving again towards Jesus Christ is that followership decision. You make it. For none of us here are in the place that Jesus wants us to be in. So we're going to turn in our Bibles to the third chapter of John. At the end of chapter 2, John was described the wonder of Jesus' miraculous signs as he worked that sign in Cana and turned water into wine. And then in Jerusalem, when he cleansed the temple. So here now, in John, Jesus is going to do even more signs. Each is selected by John to show how Jesus, the Messiah, not only replaces, but overwhelms the traditional institution of Judaism. John chapter 3, the first 18 verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. Now, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Nick was a Pharisee. He was a member also of the Sanhedrin, which was the council made up of 70 men. The high priest was the chairman and other members from the priesthood and scribes and elders. And then from the people all made this 70 person man council. Nick comes at night to Jesus. And traditionally, you know, it's thought that Nick was fearful of being identified with Jesus. Nick called the teacher, was called the teacher of Israel. Now that's a really special title. He was a man that thought. I think Nick wanted to uninterrupted time with Jesus. And that's really the reason he came at night. Because Jesus was so busy with people during the day. Nick certainly had heard of the events at Cana and knew what Jesus had done already in the temple. Nick says that he knows that Jesus is from God because of the miraculous signs. Jesus responds by saying, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus cuts through the customary forms of respect and introduction and gets down to real issues. You see, Nick came to see who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah or what? Or who is he? Jesus makes it clear to Nick that a new beginning from above is ex- uh, needed or, uh, to experience God's kingdom. What does being born again mean? I remember when Jimmy Carter came out and said he was born again. I also remember when Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler magazine, proclaimed that he was born again too. 
And he said, if it's love, it cannot be wrong. So he called his magazine Clean Sex. Then there was the born-again stripper. Her rationale for stripping was, since God gave me a beautiful body, this was the way for her to use her gift. She was stripping for Jesus. That's what she said. Probably wasn't what uh, Jesus had in mind when he died on the cross, though. Today, being born again can mean anything, or it can mean really nothing. But from our passage today, we learn what it really means. Nick came at night for a philosophical discussion. Jesus cuts him off and went straight to the heart of the matter. Here Jesus expresses, expresses the greatest concept of our faith, being born again. It sent the wheels in Nick's minds going fast. I don't think Jesus was suggesting some sort of crude genial, uh, genealogical uh, miracle by returning into your mother's room, womb. You see, Nick was thinking of the meaning of being, as it being born again, but I believe Jesus was thinking of the alternative meaning, being born from above. Nick was also expressing a deep longing, a longing we all have had. If only I could live my life over again, there sure would be some changes. You ever thought that? I have. As Nick realizes what Jesus is talking about, he sees that Jesus is talking about a radical, fundamental transformation. He knows it's necessary, but how do we do it? I believe that's our heart's cry as well. We desire to change. We want to be different. You know how hard it is to change any habit in your life. You know how hard it is. God calls us and then gives us and empowers us the ability to radically transform our lives. I remember what I was like before I became a Christian. I had a really foul mouth. In fact, I can remember going to Boy Scout camp and was cussing out another kid when my dad, the scoutmaster, walked in the room. He'd never heard me talk like that before. And he gave me that pained look. And I realized, I gotta do something about this. This has gone too far. And so I began to pray to God, asking him to change in me. Now, I don't know about you, but you know how hard it is if you have one of those catch words that you always say to get rid of that? I had more than a catch word. I was one of those guys that could talk a blue streak. And yet God radically transformed my life. Not because I was special, but because I was seeking his transformation. Jesus says, truly, truly. And I, I love that phrase. There's a couple of others that Jesus uses and we read in the New Testament. What truly, truly really means is that uh, you can 
Jesus is saying to us, you can put all of your weight on this. It's foundational. No one can enter. Truly, truly, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Nick really was the walking dead. Why would I call a faithful priest as a, and a pastor to his community one of the most holy people around, a dead man walking? It has to do with him trusting in the wrong things to make him pleasing to God. Hear this because it may be some of your issue too. He was trusting in his heritage. Like all good priests of his day, Nick was a direct descendant of Abraham. He could quote his lineage by memory if asked and could prove that he deserved a high place in society. I wonder how many here were born into Christianity. You grew up in a Christian home and going to church really is all that you've ever known. The second thing is that Nick trusted in the law. Now, I want you to remember a number. It's 613. Put it in your mind. I'll come back to it. That's the number of laws found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Nick had all 613 memorized. He could quote chapter and verse where they were found. He knew the moral law, the dietary law, the civil law, and the ceremonial laws by heart. Not only that, but he was a Pharisee. And for every law, they added two to six different stipulations to each of those laws to ensure that there was no wiggle room, no grace for those who violated the law. For years, Nick had taught and followed these laws and never broke one of them. But as the Apostle Paul found out, trusting in following the law for your salvation makes you a dead man walking. We read in Romans 3.20, there is no one, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Law doesn't make you righteous. It can only inform you when you do wrong. Since Nick is focused on following the law, Nick is trusting in his performance. He did everything he was supposed to do, but with all of that, he felt something missing in his spiritual life. Then enters Jesus. Jesus is the polar opposite of what Nick would expect of a man God would use. Jesus is untrained with no spiritual pedigree. He was uneducated. No famous rabbi uh, had trained him. To our way of thinking, Jesus, uh, the man, never even attended middle school. Jesus wasn't born into a noble family in Jerusalem. He was nobody, and you have to go all the way back to David to find a famous person in Jesus' lineage. And Jesus is from a hick town in Galilee called Nazareth, which is the wrong side of the social economic tracks. Finally, and most damaging in the eyes of the religious community, Jesus was rumored to be a son of sin. 
Everybody in Nazareth knew what happened during Mary's engagement to Joseph. And the stigma would follow Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. It was all on Nick's mind as he meets with Jesus. Yet he desperately needs and wants answers to how God is using Jesus in spite of all of these imagined shortcomings. I think Nick was honestly puzzled because God isn't using him that way. And in spite of being faithful and an obedient priest, he gets none of the action that Jesus gets. God seems to be using Jesus, this uneducated lay person with questionable background, to perform incredible miracles not seen in Israel for 400 years. Now let me just stop here a minute and say, this is one of the teaching points that we need to learn about Nick and his life. If God would use Jesus with his pedigree, let me just say he'd use you, if you'd let him, to do miraculous things, to help people, to encourage people, to bring hope to people. You, God would use you. That ocean of love would crash upon you and pour out from you to other people. I recently uh, re-watched the movie Apollo 13 about the mission to the moon in which part of the spacecraft, you know, uh, blew up on the way to the moon and they hardly made it back to Earth. Being a little bit of a tech and a science nerd, I was amazed. Don't call me science nerd, though. I'm only pointing at one person, but that's all right. I was amazed that what they called computers on their spaceship, spaceship, spacecraft. Do you know that if you're wearing a digital watch right now, that watch has more processing power and is a better computer than the computers that were inside the spacecraft that landed people on the moon. If you've got a smartphone, one of these things, a smartphone has over 20,000 times the memory and the processing power of the computer that helped Neil Armstrong take one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. Imagine taking that primitive Apollo guidance computer and making it try to load even the easiest and smallest computer operating system in existence today. The computer would either freeze or start smoking trying to run a simple game. In essence, that's what happened when Adam and Eve bit the apple. Essentially, they shorted out and the information overwhelmed our spiritual operating system. And uh, operating system that was created to be completely dependent on God to prov provide the power to operate. Adam and Eve and everybody that has followed them became the walking dead, infected with a virus that wrecked havoc because we're not designed to process the information regarding evil. We all carry this virus and became walking dead forever stuck 
struck down with an illness that was constantly waiting to pounce and kill us. Now, God didn't design us to process evil because he loves us with an everlasting, overwhelming love. And he never wanted us to know or experience what evil does to a person. Nick was a dead man walking and didn't realize this uh, is a fact and what's really troubling him. Nick is representative of everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But Jesus doesn't leave Nick in his dead state, but he shows him the solution. Nick needs to meet one-on-one with Jesus, and that really is an important lesson for us. We learn this from their meeting. You cannot ride somebody's coattails to Jesus. Just because your mama prayed doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your daddy was on the church board doesn't guarantee you a spot in the eternal kingdom. Just because your spouse is religious, God doesn't have to take you also when he takes them to heaven. You need to make time to meet with Jesus alone and really do some business. You're not buying a movie ticket for a few hours of your time. You're enlisting into a kingdom. Jesus says, count the cost, then take up your cross and follow me. Jesus summed up the problem like this. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Jesus is telling Nick and all of us here this morning, no one can experience God's peace unless they die to themselves. No one can uh, feel God's abiding presence unless they surrender. No one can know God's power unless they're willingly emptying themselves of all the sin in their lives. They have to trust in God and Jesus at that point. Repentance and receiving the work of the Holy Spirit makes us born from above. So let me ask you, have you been born from above? Let's pray. Almighty God, if there's anybody in this room that has never really given their life to you being born from above, and you're feeling God tugging on your heart, speaking into your life. It's very simple. All you have to say is, Jesus, I give my life to you. Forgive me for my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Put me on a new path and a new way of living. Help me stop being an orbital Christian, but move closer to you. And there are others of you in this room that are orbital Christians, no doubt about it. And I would say to you, confess your sin. A sin that said sometime in the past, whatever the reason, this is as far as I go. Confess that and ask Jesus to forgive you and to move closer to you. Remember, that's the one prayer he will answer yes to every time. 
help me become closer to you, Jesus. And Lord, as we're a church, we want to share that ocean of love that we experience with others. Thank you for all that you have given to us. Lord Jesus, show us the areas of our lives that we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to transform. Show us where we've gone into orbit around you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, begin your work in us. Get us out of that stuck place that we're in and transform our lives, our actions, our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.